everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Jeffrey Bellin, who is the author of the book Mass Incarceration Nation. He is a law professor at uh, William and Mary in Virginia. Welcome to our show. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. So tell us about the book, Mass Incarceration Nation. Sure. So um, this it kind of arose out of, um, you know, partly uh, what I had done before becoming a professor, which is I was a prosecutor for a while and also worked for uh, the California Courts of Appeals on criminal cases. Uh, and then when I started teaching, uh, I actually thought that people weren't paying enough attention to the problems of uh, our criminal justice system and how many people were being uh, put in prison and jails. And so I started teaching a seminar on the topic and it was one of the first classes even got some press about, oh, someone's teaching this weird topic, uh, mass incarceration. Uh, And then from that, I started to work on the book. Uh, And what's interesting is that by the time I've written the book, people had started to notice the mass incarceration problem is no longer like a new phenomenon. Uh, but even with that, so the book has just come out recently, uh, but even with that, I felt like I had a, a different perspective uh, and something different to say about it. And I also think kind of unfortunately, uh, we're sliding back, although there's been a little progress recently uh, in the last couple of years, I think we're sliding back into familiar patterns that led to mass incarceration. and might mean uh, that without kind of consistent attention to the topic uh, will lead to uh, us kind of staying at the high rates that we have now. So what would you say your big takeaway is if if you had to sum up your book? Yeah, so so one thing, I'll say this. I mean, one thing that's a little different about my book, especially uh, to some of the popular press books, is I don't try to simplify it. Um, and so there's there's not the, you know, there's one thing that's the problem of mass incarceration. If anything, uh, what I say in the book is, there's actually a lot of different causes, and that's why the problem is so big and gotten uh, so out of hand. It's that, you know, there's not, and you know this, there's not kind of one American criminal justice system. There's actually, you know, 50, if you think of the states, 51, if you think of the federal system. And then even within the states, there's, you know, thousands because each county has a DA and each city has a police department. And then there's a parole, uh, you know, office like in California, the parole department is a big part of the story. And so there's just a million different things going on. And it's all of these systems, and importantly, all of them working together. So kind of police, prosecutors, legislatures, judges, parole officers, kind of because they're all on the same page, 
they were able to do so much, like accomplish so much in terms of putting people in prison and jail. And so one of the big takeaways of the book is there's not a simple answer. There's, it's not just prosecutors. It's not just race. It's not just uh, like legislators. It's, it's like all this. It's not just, you know, Clinton Democrats or social, right? like all the things that you've read a book saying this is the one thing. You know, I don't think that's right. I think it's actually, yeah, and, and if it were just the one thing, it would actually be much easier to solve. But the problem, as we're seeing, is much harder to solve because it's so many different things and so many different pieces. And there are commonalities and, and things we can point to that uh, thread through all of these things. But because, you know, and, and without, and so what I want to do with the book is identify like each of these things is contributing in this way to the problem of mass incarceration so that, you know, if you're trying to fix this or reform, uh, or you know, you know, abolition, or whatever you're trying to do, you can see that you have to attend to all of these different pieces, or, or alternatively, that you have an opportunity in different places. So you can, you know, if you're if you're able to influence the police in one jurisdiction, but not the prosecutors, or the judges, but not the legislature, and then obviously, uh, most of all, if you can influence the legislature or the state, um, you know, the federal legislature, states, uh, city council, anyone, right? Each of these uh, has a contribution, and so you can push on. Uh, each of them to to uh, achieve many of the goals. Uh, but that's what's so interesting and, and like powerful about the story of mass incarceration that I lay out in the book. It's how what happened in this country is that all of these actors, all these institutions got on the same page at different times, but over time. And that's why uh, we have so many people in prison uh, and jail. And then the other, you asked like kind of contributions. The other interesting, I think, insight I developed as I was doing research on this uh, is that there's really kind of two pictures or two lenses onto the American system. Uh, and one is what I call the criminal justice system. And the other is what I call the criminal legal system. And the criminal justice system is like the paradigmatic example are like homicide cases. So someone, you know, say your neighbor gets killed and then the police identify who they think did it and arrest that person and, and there's prosecution and kind of imagine like everyone in the community is interested in that case. And there's a sense the family wants justice and all this. And so that process of deciding, is this person actually responsible? And then what should happen as a result? I think that's fairly described as the criminal justice system. And then there's another part of our system that's nothing like that. And the typical example is drug crimes. And so there the government just says, we want people to stop using drugs or selling drugs or combination. And so we're gonna make this illegal. And then, you know, as you can expect, like not everybody listens. And so people keep using drugs and things like that. And then the government starts arresting people. And because everybody's, you know, it's, it's everywhere, there's a lot of discretion in the system and that uh, plays out in, in predictable ways. And then you get the, you know, people that are selling drugs in America um, start to be, but in prison, that was a big part of the mass incarceration story, this like crackdown on uh, war on drugs. And it's not just the policing, but the change in the attitudes for the prosecutors and judges and legislatures about these crimes. And so that generates a lot of uh, people going to prison and jail over time. And that I call the criminal legal system. And what happens a lot is that people arguing about this in this space, they're kind of talking about two different things. So some people, you know, if they're trying to support the status quo or argue uh, in favor of something, are thinking about the homicide case, and the people fighting against that are thinking about the drug cases. And it's important to keep these two things separate, the 
criminal legal system, which really grew it from 1970 to today. We just went all in on this idea that we're going to use criminal courts to try to stop people from using drugs, stop people from drunk driving, stop people from committing domestic violence, stop people from uh, weapons possession. And you can see, even as your listeners listen to this, they're going to hear like, well, that crime I like, that crime I don't like that. Right. And, and but it, that's that's part of the story. We kind of compromise as a society on like, well, we couldn't decide exactly which thing to focus on. Well, just everyone, like we're going to focus on everything together. Uh, and and the answer was, we're going to make these things criminal offenses and we're going to put you in jail and prison if we catch you doing it. And and that was a big expansion. It used to be we just were putting people in prison and jail, you know, not this is exaggeration, but mostly just for criminal justice things, forcible rapes, homicides, things like that. And now we're still doing that. And those sentences have gotten sentences have gotten longer. Uh, but now we're, we've expanded and we're also putting people in prison for a long time for drugs and for weapons possession and for, um, you know, it's just a, a long list that you would need a book uh, to explain. And it seems like, you know, that distinction between the criminal justice system and the criminal legal system um, is a good way to kind of think about things, even though, you know, I think there's some bleed over um, between the two. But you know, one of the things as you were talking, you know, we we send interns into the courtroom and often what we're asking them to look at is is what we don't call this. But, you know, we refer to it as kind of everyday injustice, but you're referring to it as kind of the criminal legal system. Yeah. And this was an insight I had um, as a prosecutor uh, and and. Um, and it was that a lot of the cases, like the volume of cases, are these drug, you know, drug sales and gun possessions. Like the most of the cases are like that. And in my office, like no one that I, I was in Washington D.C., like no one was thinking these are really important cases. And you know, we got to get the guy. And I know there are prosecutors who are like that, but that wasn't my experience. You know, the the take on it was. The police brought us these cases, and if it was clear that the person was guilty of selling a bag of heroin uh, on the streets of D.C., that was kind of our job was to prosecute, and then it was up to the judge to do what they were going to do, um, like what the what the sentence was. And we just thought we that was enforcing the law, like the law was passed by the legislature, and we were enforcing the law. But what what the insight I had as a prosecutor was so much of what we were doing was that, as opposed to like TV shows about you know, criminal justice, where it's like the homicide and the serial killer, you know, there was some of that, right? There was some of that in the DC office, unfortunately, but almost all of what we were doing was just enforcing the law. And so that's where I think like, that's the criminal legal system. Like these, you're putting the person selling drugs in prison because they're breaking the law, not to like achieve some kind of justice. And, 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 you know, like we can fight about that, but it's important for people to see that a big part of mass incarceration, like why we have so many people in prison and jail, and we didn't used to, and other countries don't, is we're using prisons as like a policy tool to try to stop uh, people from using drugs and, and things like that. And, and you know, the two, there's two things to say about that. One, it's, it's questionable, right? Like a lot of the, the rhetoric of like, we need to crack down on crime is about violent crime. And then we're shifting that to not violent crime. The second point is, it doesn't work. Like prison as a deterrent to things like drug use and drunk driving is just not working. Like the studies show that um, because, you know, because it's not like, you know, people can intuit this. Uh, there's there's a neat, I have a study in my book I, I talk about with drunk drivers. And 
they asked the drunk drivers, like, well, why did you drive drunk? You know, like, why weren't you afraid of the police? And their answer was like, well, I drove drunk a thousand times before I got caught. And these are people that got caught. So they were like, you know, are you going to stop? And they're like, well, if I stop, it's not because I'm afraid of getting caught again, because my experience is I'm never going to get caught. And, and, you know, so it's true that like when we look at the system, we're looking at the people that got caught, but, but the system's not doing a good job of catching people. And I'm not saying we should catch more people, but the point is, like, it's not going to deter you if you don't think you're going to be caught. And that's kind of the experience that people are having. You know, I have a graphic in my book that I, I drew on some statistics for robberies, and uh, I don't have it uh, like right in front of me, but it's, you know, it's something like for every hundred robberies in a city, maybe five people go to prison or so, you know, so like, like that's the order of it. And so, you know, it's not the case that if we say robbery is illegal and we're going to really punish people for robbery, that everyone's going to stop committing robberies because it's just not true that they're going to get caught. And so if they don't think they're going to get caught, they're going to it's not going to work as a deterrent. And so putting someone in prison and putting someone in jail is just not achieving the policy goal that it's it's purportedly uh, going to achieve. And and, you know, that's just another um, problem with using prisons uh, the way we are. So there's an interesting kind of debate, um, you know, over what's driving mass incarceration. And you can read the the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, and she'll argue that it's really drug cases. And then people like John Pfaff, uh, you know, will argue, well, if you look at the prison population, it's not drug users. Um, and you kind of get into this and, and weigh in on it. What What's your kind of take on this? Yeah, so this is where I'm saying, so, you know, like it's it's all of these things, right? And so I think, you know, Faf and, and these people will say, and Bill Stunts before him, that it's, it's like 20% or 25% of um, uh, people in the, in the population of prisons and jails are in there for drugs. And so it's not, so there's a lot of people that aren't in there for drugs. Uh, but also there's a lot of people in there for drugs, right? So, um, you know, 25% is a lot. And if you think of it in terms of human beings, it's a lot of human beings. And so, and the other piece to it is that's the part, and this is where Michelle Alexander is right. So she, she's wrong to just to say it's just drugs, right? And then, so Faf is right to say, well, it's more than drugs, but he's wrong to say it's it's not drugs. And, and, and the other piece to this that's really interesting, if you look at the data, is drugs is the thing that changed the most. It just wasn't the case. So certainly drugs were always illegal, but it just wasn't the case that we were arresting so many people and putting so many in people, uh, people in prison and jail for drugs. And so if you look at change over time, that's the piece that changed the most. If you look at like how many people were in prison for drugs in 1970 versus 2000 or 2020, that's the piece that changed the most. And it's also the piece that I think people perceive as the easiest to fix, right? In terms of if you tried to get a legislator to change something, you know, if you want to say, like you've heard my argument so far, it's like, um, should we address, uh, like, who should we pick first as the easiest target to release some of the pressure on prisons? I think drugs would be an obvious answer. Uh, and so, you know, so one, so if you said to me, like, well, which is response, what's the, what's the cause of mass incarceration? I'd say there's a lot of causes. One of the causes is the drug war and all the people that we're putting in prison and jail for drugs is one of the causes, uh, but it's not the only cause. So Faf is right about that. And Michelle Alexander is right that it's a big deal and something that's really important. And it's also one of the places, one of the things I talk about, the problems with the criminal legal system is it's full of discretion points. So if you say to like the, your local police, um, like if, if you think about your local police and what they're doing, 
um, if there's a homicide in your town, they get a call, there's a body and, and they investigate. And if they catch the person, they arrest them and they're charged. And, and it's kind of a clear path to what happens in a homicide case. So there is discretion in the case, but it's channeled, right? There's, there's clear, um, like the police aren't going to say, well, we caught the murderer, but we don't care. We're not going to bother for race or, you know, they're, they're going to prosecute that case uh, if they catch the person. But for drugs, it's not like that at all. For drugs, the police sit around and they say, hmm, like, let's go catch some drug people if they're at free time. And this is how it was in D.C. There was a squad of police officers and they had an undercover officer and a bunch of people that would be in uniform ready to swoop in. The undercover officer would go to wherever and, and buy drugs and, and he would buy drugs from someone and the police would swoop in and arrest that person. And the D.C. police could catch as many people as they wanted selling drugs, you know, just depending on how much resources they devoted to that. Uh, because there's just in big cities, there's always people selling drugs. And notice, like, there's discretion there that you you like won't even see, right? Like, well, would the DC police go to the Georgetown campus and do this? No, right? They would pick where they would go to do it. And so, like, these the criminal legal system gives you tons of discretion in choosing like who to target. And like, and and one of the things I talk about in the book is the way this, even if you put aside kind of the and the things that we know that are, that are there, like racism and corruption and things like that, even if you put that aside, the discretion is going to leak in the direction of the easiest targets, right? Like who can the police get easiest? And so one way, one thing the police will say, if you talk to them about race disparities in drug uh, arrests, they'll say, well, you know, when we arrest people in public uh, or we, we go do our drugs thing in the public park and that's, you know, it's the, this race is who we're catching in the public park. Well, Okay, but like, why are you going to the public park, right? That, like, that's it's all influence. And there, there was like, well, that's easier. It's very hard for us to do drugs things on the Georgetown campus. Well, it, you know, why is it hard? It's hard because of society. Like, the racial, uh, like, it, the racism has infected our society. So that when you know you go to one place, it's easy to target people, and another place, it's hard to target people. So that the, in addition to all the other problems with using the criminal legal system, um, is that it's it's full of discretion, and this discretion in any uh, in, in any American society, uh, an American uh, institution is going to be influenced by all the factors that we know um, are problematic in society generally. Yeah, I think, you know, in general, I think nobody really wants to see the police going in to bust, uh, you know, Georgetown Law students uh, who might be, uh, you know, doing drugs on the weekend. Um, but, you know, what we're starting to see again, and you know, we kind of thought the war on drugs was over and now fentanyl's coming back. Uh, and, and so we're seeing kind of this renewed focus and we're even seeing, you know, they're, them bringing back um, this idea of um, overdose as a homicide uh, mm. idea. Um, so so we're going back there, right? Yeah, and this is one of the, the other insights I try to push. And this is, you know, the, the, my book is full of unpopular insights, right? Basically like designed to make everyone upset. But one of the insights that I try to uh, push in through the book is that there's, it's it, like, it's, there's arguments for all, like there's the, for everyone who's in prison and jail, like every, not person, but like every crime that we put people in prison or jail for, there's an argument for why, right? It's it's there. It's it's not easy. Like if you just said, well, let's let everyone out who doesn't deserve to be in prison or jail out. Like it would just that that's not going to work because someone's going to come up with an argument for why. And and like take the easiest example, right? Say like marijuana sale. And you say like if you say to the police, 
well, why is anyone in prison or jail for marijuana sales? And mostly they're not like that's not the big category, but there are people. And if you say to the police, well, you know, why are people why are you arresting that? Why are you bothering with marijuana sales? What they're going to say is, well, marijuana is really lucrative. And so um, and that's the most dangerous drug dealers are the marijuana dealers. And they're like a lot of the violence we're having is because of drug dealing or whatever. And I don't know. I'm not saying that because I know that it's true, but I know that's what the police will say when you push them on. Why are you bringing these cases to us? And and the point is, like, there's arguments for all of these things. You say like drunk driving or you say domestic violence. These are these are awful things that people shouldn't do. And so the same with fentanyl, right? People are dying of fentanyl or opioid uh, stuff and, and heroin. Is, these are terrible um scourges on society crack was the same way in in the um and as part of like what happened with like awful stories about crack cocaine led to uh efforts to put really severe penalties on crack cocaine so it wasn't that crack cocaine is harmless and we should just let everyone use it there's arguments for why um these things are are bad and we should try to get rid of them where the argument fails is putting people in prison doesn't get rid of these things. Like it, it that's the disconnect. So the disconnect is it, like, it, you're not going to win in, if you're trying to reform by arguing that these aren't bad things and we don't need to punish people for them. That this is not going to work because people are going to have arguments for uh, every one of these things about why uh, people should be in prison or jail. That's how it happened, right? There were good arguments and I mean, good in the sense of, I, I agree with them, but like compelling arguments that spoke to people in a democracy uh, and those arguments are going to come out again every time you try to uh, create reform. The weakness of the status quo is that putting people in prison and jail and arresting people for these things, like these aren't the ways to stop them. And they're just haven't proved effective. You know, the drug war is, is as good as an example as you're ever going to get. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is like the price of heroin has just dropped, right? And uh, over decades. And so you know, it, it hasn't gotten any harder to get heroin, despite this giant law enforcement apparatus trying to make it, you know, so that if you sell heroin, you're going to get arrested and you're going to get put in prison. And all these efforts to decrease the supply of heroin, it just hasn't worked at all, despite decades and decades of trying to attack it as a law enforcement problem. And, you know, I think to other degrees, this same argument works for a lot of things, weapons possession and, and all these things that, in the abstract, you might say, I want to stop people from carrying guns, so I'm going to put people in prison, and then I'm going to give them mandatory sentences. And it just doesn't work that way. It's, these are not effective ways to stop people from doing so something. But what it does do is it puts a few people in prison, and then that few multiplied over all the systems I talked about, and over time becomes a wave of people, a multitude of people. And, and so it's not that there's no argument for like why someone carrying a gun on a city street shouldn't be stopped and and maybe punished, but it's that putting that person in prison is not solving the problem that we're like we're told it's going to solve, and that's that's the disconnect. And so that, that you know your question about fentanyl, like it's just another argument about something that's bad for society that we need to take seriously, we need to address. But prison is not going to work, and and it's just it hasn't worked in the past, and it's probably not going to work again. Um, and then. You know, you talk a little bit about things like drug courts, and I thought the discussion there was really interesting because, you know, um, a lot of times uh, there's kind of a recognition, I think, that, you know, prison isn't really the way to deal with drug problems, but they don't want to, like, cut the line in terms of, you know, prosecuting cases and things like that. So they go to things like drug court. and and do does drug court 
actually work. Yeah, and so that's another place that I had some insight from doing a rotation in drug court. And so I talk about this in the book. I, you know, the prosecutor assigned to drug court sits there while the drug court puts people in jail by itself. And the, you know, the drug court is ostensibly about, um, you know, a non coercive. Well, I shouldn't even say it. it's not even a set. Like it, it is coercive. And the idea is if you follow the treatment plan, you know, you don't have to have a case prosecuted. But if you, you know, test positive for drugs, they put you in jail for a day. And if you test positive again, they put you in jail for five days. And what can happen with anyone that has a serious drug problem, they don't do well in drug court and they end up serving time in jail and prison. And well, there's less less common with prison, but certainly in jail. And and then they in the study I talk about in the in the book, uh, has people in the Bronx who were doing more time through drug court than they were through non-drug court. And it's kind of backwards, right? And and so the, the argument I make is that, you know, we obviously drug use and uh, is a big problem and it needs to be addressed, but addressing it through the criminal justice system, and this ties into what I'm talking about, it's just not about justice, right? The, the drug user and even the drug seller were not going after them for justice and the, and that's a good sign that the criminal courts are just not the way to deal with it and so anything that you're running through a DA's office or a criminal court the the backstop for that program is if you don't do x you go to jail and what people don't realize is it's it's you know it's hard to stop using drugs and and you know people are going to mess up a couple times and so you know in in the fantasy world you go to drug court, you never use drugs again, fine, that person will be fine, but that's just not how it's playing out. Uh, and so these programs, which are alternatives to jail and prison in a sense, if you follow exactly the rules that you're given, uh, end up being a road to jail and prison. And the same thing with probation, um, probation and parole. Uh, like, so a lot of times we would see cases where the defendant would uh, be convicted and be sentenced to probation. And the judge has a little speech about, you know, I'm giving you probation and, you know, this is your chance, you know, make it work. And then, you know, a month later, two months later, the person gets arrested. And now the judge says, I gave you a chance and now you're going to, to prison. And and it's it's kind of just being in the system. You're 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 on this track. Right. And you're on this track to jail and prison. Not everybody's on the track and it's better to get probation first than uh, the, than to go straight to jail. Uh, and this is also a reason that if you talk to judges and prosecutors, they're they're going to push back if you say, oh, well, the system is too coercive because they're going to say, well, people get multiple chances. And, and you know, the person first got probation and then they went to jail or prison. But it's just the wrong lens to think about things. What we have to think about as a society is, is putting people in prison and jail right? Like, is this, is this a, you know, is it morally right? And second, is it a way that we're accomplishing anything? And when you step back and take in the big picture like that, you're going to see that it's not. We're not accomplishing things through putting people in jail and prison. And so we need to stop, right? Like that. that's that's how, you know, and obviously there's different cases and different uh, scenarios where it may make sense. But, you know, this one of the stories that just I, like haunts me uh, is a story about this defendant. You might have heard of it because it got uh, some buzz. But he was a big fan of Larry Bird. And I can't remember exactly. Uh, you'll impress me if you know Larry Bird's jersey number. But let's say it's like 30, something like that. 33. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, wow, okay. I had no idea you would know that. Okay, so, yeah, so the, the guy got 30-year sentence. And he says to the judge, you know, I'm a big fan of Larry Bird. Can you make my sentence 33 years? And the judge says, oh, okay, great, yeah. Like, if you want it, I'll give you 33 years. And And it's just so backwards, right? Like, we should be so resistant to putting people in prison. 
that the idea that we would change someone's sentence to match Larry Bird's number is is just like you know indicative of like how we're just thinking about prison in the wrong way. And and it really has to be thought of as the last resort that we're resistant to use unless we're sure we're getting some benefit from it. And that case is is just rare. It's rare to see any kind of suggest any studies that suggest that we do get benefit from it. And I do know that like there are some cases where uh, where it does make sense, but most mostly it doesn't. And that's that's kind of the backward system we're in, where it's like you have to justify not putting in people people in prison rather than you have to justify putting them there. Yeah, I mean, you just reminded me of uh, a case we just heard in the last couple of weeks where. Um, you know, somebody had been um, convicted or pled uh, more likely to uh, a burglary charge and, um, you know, they were put on probation. Um, and even though drugs had nothing to do with, um, you know, the underlying offense, um, you know, there was a provision in there that, uh, you know, they couldn't uh, do substance abuse and they were required to do uh, drug testing, um, they come back positive, and now all of a sudden they're going uh, back into custody. And 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 the defense attorney's like, that shouldn't have even been put in there in the first yeah. place. This was not a drug case. Um, and so this person, you know, pled uh, to avoid jail sentence and then ends up going in through the back door. And that's very common. And that's one of the other things that I've stressed in the book that people don't talk about. But it's it's hard to get exact data. But the way I estimated in the book, it's about a third of the people going into prison are going in because of violations of probation and parole. And it's just a piece of the system that no one's looking at because there's a lot of people that really focus on prosecutors and a lot of people that focus on you know the first crime and things like that. Uh, and and what you, so you think all right, the person got arrested for this, the sentence was this, they pled out, you know whatever happened, and now that case is over. Well, it's not over because you're on probation, and like you said, you've got all these conditions in your probation, and that's the same with parole. Parole, tons of positions, and you and tons of conditions, and you you can be searched and all this stuff. And so, you know the the like California is a good example of this where you are. The parole system for for California was a big part of how California, you know, this, this progressive state ended up with a huge prison population. A big part of that was people on parole. Uh, and California's a weird story because like you actually can't get parole to get out. You just get parole like lopped on to the end of your sentence. But people on parole in California who were getting violated um, after they were out and going back to prison and just a huge chunk of California prisons, uh, prisoners were being placed in uh, prison for parole violations. And if you just look at the the initial process, like you said, the front door, you're going to miss that. It's the back door is a huge chunk of mass incarceration as well. And just another thing to think about, right? Like, like what is going on there? In a lot of these cases, it's just something like what you just you just said. Someone uses drugs, tests positive for drugs, and now they're going back in. And that's not about justice, right? That's about you didn't follow the rules. You, did, you didn't um, follow the law. And so now we're going to put you in prison as a way to try to stop you from uh, using drugs and make you follow the rules going forward. But if you step back, you say, like, well, what are we doing? You know, it's not it's not about does this person follow the rules? It's about as a society, we're getting anything out of putting human beings in prison for situations like this. And usually the answer is no. So there's a general perception, I think, that the reason the incarceration rate is so high in the U.S. is because our crime rate is high. And yet, 
you know, if you look at the data, um, especially longitudinal data, um, you, you see that, that, that uh, incarceration is really detached from uh, increases or decreases in crime. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, and this is a hard point. And, and when I talk to audiences about um, this book and this topic, the number one pushback I get from thoughtful people who are you know, receptive to the idea but cautious is they say, well, doesn't incarceration reduce crime? Right. That's that's the that's the hook that gets most like to the extent that Americans support the policies that led to mass incarceration. That's the argument that is most likely driving them is that, well, maybe it's unfortunate. Maybe, you know, it's we're getting too many people. But overall, they think uh, that incarceration is reducing crime. And it's tricky because uh, the way I talk about it in the book, and I think most people agree with this or maybe even everyone uh, every scholar that's looked at it agrees that if you trace American mass incarceration to the beginning, the place you have to start is there was a crime surge in the 70s. And so the way I talk about it in the book is that it is a part of the story that there was a surge in crime in the 1970s. But it's not that there was more crime and then we started putting more people in prison. There was a blip of crime went up and then it went down and we kept putting more and more people in prison. And this, the explanation there is that the crime surge led to a change in how we did our system and it changed, it changed the laws and it changed our attitudes to these things. And those laws and attitudes stayed even when crime went down. And so crime came back down, but we still had three strikes laws and we'd gotten rid of parole and we had determinate sentencing and you know tough on crime politics. And we're, now we're doing the drug war and all that stuff stayed behind. And one of the interesting things I show in, with the data in my book is that while at first the story of mass incarceration was a response to the crimes that people care about, burglaries, robberies, homicides, that's how it started. What happened when those crimes went back down, then it became, mass incarceration became a story of drug crimes and weapons possession and DWI and domestic violence, kind of the things that police were could find easily. That became the target and, and the place that uh, police. We had more police now and more infrastructure for putting people in prison. And so that was just turned towards easier targets when there weren't uh, as many murderers and uh, rapists to find. The police just switched and said, OK, we'll do drug stings and we'll arrest the people that were getting called to the houses for domestic violence and we'll do DWI checkpoints. And so they were able to kind of keep the prison populations high even after crime uh, went down. But I, th I think this is a critical point uh, if you connect. So it's not that crime leads to more people in prison and jail because we don't catch everybody and all that. Uh, and obviously it does increase a little bit, but the police, whether or not there's crime, the police are able to, or crime in the sense of burglaries, robberies, and, and rapes, the police can only shift to things like drugs and weapons, possession, and things like that to fill uh, arrests uh, and courts. Uh, the, it's, but, it, but what is true is that the more violent crime there is, the more the public is receptive to more serious laws and more toughness, and the less the public is receptive to reform. And you can see this everywhere, that everywhere there's reform, the like next group or the status quo, like, you know, attacks the reform by saying, well, look, there's more murders this year, therefore the reform is responsible. And so I, I put in, and one of the things I say in the book is, while there are ways to reduce our prison populations through just focusing on the criminal legal system and reducing the amount of people in prison who are just there because they broke the law. And, uh, but also it's very important 
if we want to maintain the progress that we've got and, and that we can get to try to reduce violent crime. And there are ways to reduce violent crime that have nothing to do with the criminal justice system. And we, But it's important to focus on those because the history shows that if you have a surge in violent crime in America, you're going to get tougher laws, tougher politicians, tougher prosecutors, tougher judges, and we're just going to be right back. Any progress will be lost. And, you know, stories like this are everywhere. But like Alaska was one of the first states to have a um, like a big criminal justice reform package. And I think like 2016. And then they had kind of a mini crime surge. And the next next governor ran on that and got rid of all the criminal justice reform. And so that kind of that story can play out uh, all different places. And so while you know, it's not inevitable that crime will, will lead to mass incarceration. Um, and I'm talking about violent crime here. It's a problem for reformers. And and so while reformers should focus on, you know, all the different pieces, one of those pieces is trying to reduce violent crime. And along those lines, you'd mention that, you know, a lot of the tough on crime laws stay behind how much of that has actually been undone? Because there seems to be this perception that we've done all this massive reform and that's fueling this crime increase. And yet, if you actually look at it, we haven't really done that much. Yeah, there's two two points to say. So one is there's no evidence that I've seen that suggests that any reform has led to any crime increase. The, you know, the, the crime has increased all different places, some places where there's no reform, some places where there's some reform, uh, and and also it's it's a very short time span. So you know any expert will tell you if you want to look at like how policies affect crime and vice versa, you have to look over a long period of time. And that could be like year to year uh, changes because there's a lot of uh, variables that go into this. And the other thing about crime statistics, one, they're very hard to get reliable crime statistics. For me, I don't even pay attention to a crime statistic except for homicide. Right, because there's so much variation in reporting, and police can fudge crime statistics. The other one I'm sensitive to, but I think uh, has to do with technology, is like car thefts, because everyone reports their car thefts. But once you move out of that, uh, for insurance purposes, once you move out of that, there's so much, there's so many ways to fudge the statistics and for reporting to change things. So, so that uh, is a problem also. So you don't have a long enough time period to tell what's actually happening with crime. Crime statistics are so malleable and incomplete that you couldn't even tell people in most places. But you can do things with homicides. I think homicides are a good, uh, like reliable crime statistic. And there are does seem to be an increase in homicides in some jurisdictions. But as far as I can tell, and as I've seen, it's not connected with reform. It's connected with other things like most of crime statistics. They're not caused by criminal justice policy. And I think that's frustrating for people because that's policy is a thing we can change and um, it's concrete. But so that that's one part of it. Uh, and then the, the other part of uh, why um, criminal justice policy is like not going to be the answer to these things is what I was just talking about before. You're, you're, you're not like even if you do have an increase in homicide, there is not a solution to that except arresting the people that are committing the homicide and that's hard right that's hard police work and that's important and we need to uh, support those efforts and that's what i said that's the criminal justice system uh but beyond that if you say to the police well there's an increase in homicide like do something beyond arresting the people that are committing the homicide that do something is going to become just like the new york city police did uh during stop and frisk which was exactly a scenario they had a, a spike in homicide in new york city and new york City police like couldn't catch the people, so they just started stopping everybody and seeing if anyone was carrying guns. And so you get stuff like that, which, which you know, again, there's not good data to show that that 
worked in any way. It was unconstitutional, had all sorts of racial implications. But, you know, there, there's not this clear connection between, oh, let's do the criminal justice policy that solves the homicide problem. It's just just doesn't work like that. And so it's a it's a mess. But it, it does show that you have to like if you want reform to succeed, you can you should pay attention to violent crime as well. Well, we are out of time, um, but I wanted to thank you for coming on. Very interesting conversation. Those of you listening, uh, Mass Incarceration Nation by Jeffrey Bellin. Um, highly recommend the book. Um, a, a great read and a, a, a good real survey of uh, criminal justice reform and some of the issues that are coming up uh, right now. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. All right. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.